Thank you very much. Um, so you should have a handout. Um, so this talk, uh, this talk, this paper is for a festschrift for Rosalind Hearst House. Um, so it was written uh, with Rosalind in mind, uh, but also my <clears throat> my intended audience is kind of contemporary virtue ethicists uh, because those would be all the other contributors in the volume. Um, so it's not written for Thomas, um, and it's not really Aquinas scholarship, but it draws on Aquinas precisely because um, I'm of the opinion that virtue ethics would be a lot better off if, in addition to Aristotle, people were reading Thomas. Um, and I think that uh, when we look at temperance, and in particular on temperance, which is a neglected virtue. The festschrift is uh, titled Neglected Virtues. Temperance is a neglected virtue. <clears throat> um, even Peter Geach called it boring. Um, I wanna focus in this paper on a neglected aspect of it, which is its underlying moral psychology. So that's, uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, so that's my introduction. So in order to generate philosophical interest in the neglected virtue of temperance, I wanna focus on a neglected aspect of it, that it's a virtue that disposes our capacity to experience bodily desires and pleasures such that they are going to conform habitually to judgments of reason. I wanna focus on the description of these desires as animal in the sense that they're not essentially rational. The phenomenology of these desires, as we know, is that they can present themselves as rationally unbidden rather than as products of deliberation and choice. They can at times seem to arise from some sort of nether region of the self with which one does not easily identify and be directed towards acts one does not rationally endorse. Consequently, these desires can engender deep feelings of alienation, frustration, or even shame and disgust. But Aristotle clearly thinks that temperance is a virtue that regulates just these kinds of desires, which implies that in some sense we can exercise rational control over them. But what is the extent of this control and how is it exercised? Aristotle is less clear about that than we might have hoped. He often invokes a metaphor to try to express it. He writes that the soul rules the body like a despot, exercising absolute command and authority over something in no position to resist in the manner that a master rules a slave. For example, if I wanna raise my arm, I raise it. By contrast, if I wanna feel hungry, I have to do something to make myself undergo the experience. I can't just do it. And if I want to stop feeling hungry, very often all I can do is distract myself or just eat until I am full. And so Aristotle says that the intellect rules the lower appetites, our passions and our sensual desires politically in the manner that a rightful authority rules over those who have the independence necessary to resist and disobey. So whatever rational control we exercise over these desires and feelings, it clearly needs a separate account from the rational control exercised over our elementary powers of locomotion. Now the contrast here, at least in part, is between activity and passivity. Whereas deliberating and making judgments and choices are things we do, 
Feelings and desires are things we suffer. This raises the question, how can one make oneself rationally receptive to the world? That is, intelligently disposed to being affected in ways that are in accordance with your general conception of how you ought to live. Now, Aristotle's own view, which I think is underdeveloped, seems to rely on the supposition that there are natural teleological connections between specific feelings, desires, and pleasures and certain kinds of natural movements. For example, fear is related to flight away from its object, desire for union with or satisfaction in it, anger to striking out or attacking it, and so on. Aristotle recognizes that while we're passive in our suffering, we are nevertheless active with respect to our practical deliberation and choices, which shapes how we are affected in the long run. So there's a secondary indirect sense that we can say our feelings are voluntary and under our control. Now, the passive and receptive character of feeling and sensuous desire is also key to understanding Aristotle's distinction in the Nicomachean Ethics between the phronimos, or the virtuous person, and a bunch of lesser character types. So, we're introduced to the self-controlled, the merely self-controlled person. This person is divided against herself because what she judges she ought to do and what she chooses are not properly aligned with what she actually desires and enjoys. So what's active and what's passive in her work at cross purposes, making the moral life difficult, not impossible, but difficult. Now, of course, self-control is better than weakness of will or vice, which are far worse. But self-control still falls short of virtue because the merely self-controlled is pulled in contrary directions. She has to force herself to choose well. It's only the virtuous person that fully possesses herself. For only the frontmost is able to move herself in an unimpeded way towards a single unifying goal of human life, which is happiness or living well. So the moral psychological question of whether our emotions and essential desires can be rationally discriminant raises an important metaphysical question about which psychological capacities are capable of coming under a person's rational control so as to be disposed towards the unifying goal of happiness or living well. It's a question, as Bonnie Kent so aptly puts it, of where to locate the virtue of temperance on the psychological map. The location question is central in part because of the distinction between virtue and mere self-control, between what we might call correct choice and choosing well. After all, the incratic has correct choice, but we might say that he does not choose well since he suffers from unfulfilled desires and his choice is both difficult to make and execute. Okay, so I wanna turn now to a scholastic debate. The location question was fiercely debated amongst the scholastics and responses to the question basically fell into two camps. There were the Augustinians and the Aristotelians. Now the Augustinians argued that all virtue properly belongs in the will because the will is the essentially rational appetite whereas Aristotelians argued that virtues are also located in other powers, 
namely those powers that can come under the command of reason and the use of the will. So Aristotelians like Thomas Aquinas placed temperance in what scholastics called the concupiscible appetite. So that would just be the capacity to experience desires for bodily pleasures, in particular pleasures of food, drink, and sex, the stuff of temperance. Now, by locating temperance in the sense appetite, the Aristotelian argues that what gets transformed and perfected by that virtue is not our capacity to think or choose, but our capacity to experience and be moved by sensual desire. So the development of the virtue of temperance is a transformation or a purification of human sensuality making it such that it's existentially ready to respond to reason's judgments with ease and satisfaction. So the temperate person chooses well because she suffers things well. She does not feel tempted in situations that might stress and challenge the less disciplined among us. Now, Augustinians find the Aristotelian idea of a transfigured sensuality Pollyannish. They think, look, while we can surely resist and control our passions, we cannot expect the passions themselves to be stable sources of acting well. Passions are stubbornly unruly and therefore improper subjects of virtue. Augustine himself describes the life of temperance as a perpetual war with internal vices. By Augustine's lights, temperance does not dispose us towards well-ordered sensual desires. Augustinian temperance disposes us to think and choose correctly in light of persistently <coughs> disordered desires. So for Augustine, temperance is habitual perseverance in the face of basically intractable lusts of the flesh, which obviously if you've read the Confessions uh, maps onto his experience. Now the scholastic debate foregrounds a crucial moral psychological question. Look, is the cultivation of temperance about developing well-disposed appetites for bodily pleasures? Is that what it does? Or is it about developing a well-disposed faculty of intention and choice, which can resist such pleasures when reason demands this? Now, as far as I can tell, the location question is just not even asked by any contemporary virtue ethicist. So we just kind of have to speculate as to what they think. Um, I'm not going to read this part of the paper just for the sake of time, but what I suggest in the paper is that Hearst House basically sounds a lot like Arist an Aristotelian, but she doesn't give us any of the details, um, and Foot sort of signals basic Augustinian commitments, um, and I think that's wrong. Uh, so, um, in Foot. Uh, and this is, this is consistent, actually, early foot and late foot uh, explicitly identify the virtues as belonging to the will. Um, and, and she goes on to say that, look, the will um, is a power uh, to recognize and respond to reasons. So it's all about having uh, good intentions and reason, responding to reasons appropriately. Uh, and all of that sounds deeply Augustinian in, in some sense. So in what follows, I want to turn to Aquinas for several insights about how to think about the moral psychology of temperance. Aquinas 
upon whom foot draws a great deal and her own account of virtue and uh, good action, especially in her late work, Natural Goodness, um, Aquinas accepts that temperance involves the will, but he denies that it belongs to the will. And the difference there matters to how we think about temperance as a virtue, how it's acquired and what its exercise is like. And it's because Aquinas locates temperance in the sensual appetites that he can understand it as self-possession rather than mere self-control. I also think that Aquinas' uh, Aquinas's work on temperance helps us to build a much stronger case for the unity of the virtues thesis than Foot can give us. Um, so I'll say some things about uh, how temperance helps us think about uh, the unity of virtues uh, by saying some things about how temperance allows us uh, to reason better uh, and to be more just. Okay, so uh, I have a whole section in this paper on the cardinal virtues, uh, which I'm just going to kind of skim again for reasons of time. Um, my principal concern with Aquinas' account of the cardinal virtues is that he grounds the virtues in philosophical psychology. So ultimately, his ground of the claim about virtue lies in his account of human nature. So what are the characteristic human powers and their operations? And what's of note about the cardinal virtues is that it shows that the, universe, the unity of the virtues is ultimately ground in an account of the unity of the human soul when it operates unimpededly towards a single unifying end. That is to say, happiness or living well as a human person. Um, and of course, that would be exactly the kind of account that, that Foot would be looking for. Uh, if you've read Natural Goodness, then you'll know what I mean. Um, okay, so I'm gonna skip a bunch of stuff about cardinal virtues that uh, doesn't really matter um, and get to the main point, which is that Aquinas, like Aristotle, argues that prudence uh, or practical wisdom depends upon moral virtue and vice versa, um, where, of course, he's understanding moral virtue as the rectification of appetites. Um, so whereas prudence disposes us to calculate the means to our end, right, living well successfully, uh, having the right ends depends upon the moral virtues, um, which habitually incline us to seek the goods that constitute living well. So I just kind of call this interdependence, the inseparability thesis. Now for Aquinas, the most important moral virtue is justice. Uh, justice he locates in the will, the essentially rational appetite, uh, which is the main principle of voluntary action. Uh, the will is essentially rational because unlike lower appetites, the will gets its objects from acts of practical judgment. So the will desires what is judged to be done here and now. Um, and the proper matter of justice uh, are our external actions, which Aquinas thinks essentially relates us to other people and is aimed at the common good. Uh, so in his definition of justice, Aquinas says that it's a habit whereby a man renders to each one his due by a constant and perpetual will. Um, now, justice is a moral virtue because the will is an appetite. For we are not said to be just through knowing something aright. We are just through our actions. 
So Aquinas recognizes that it's possible for one to know what one owes to another, a debt, say, and yet not will to act in accordance with this knowledge, and in fact, knowingly choose an action that contravenes it. Aquinas calls such, such actions malicious. So these are cases of clear-eyed wrongdoing, rather than wrongdoing that's explained either by ignorance or a disordered passion. So look, you can refuse to pay a debt just because you prefer to use the money owed to purchase luxury goods for yourself. Uh, and you can do this in full knowledge that you're obliged to pay the debt that is owed as a matter of justice. Um, now, if you're that kind of person, you're greedy, okay? So you want material goods more than you want to preserve a just order. That's bad. Don't be like that. Um, but it's not, but, but what's the failure, okay? What's the proper diagnosis of what's wrong with you? And Aquinas says it's a defect in the will, okay? It's not a defect of your intellect. Uh, or a defect of disordered passion. It's a defect in the will. The trouble with you is you're selfish. You have a disordered preference for your own private benefit, uh, which is opposed to the common good. Um, but look, that's not the only way you can be unjust. Uh, it's a common way, but it's not the only way. So, right, uh, we take a page from Dante, Paolo kissed Francesca not because he didn't know that adultery was unjust or wrong, and not because he didn't know that Francesca was a married woman. He kissed Francesca because his passionate eros for her made him neglect to consider what is just in the moment of his action. His action was unjust, but the explanation of his injustice is not greed, it's lust. So uh, that sort of example uh, is meant to illustrate Aquinas's broader point that fortitude and temperance are virtues that preserve reason, and they preserve reason through the rectification of lower appetites, thereby allowing a person to be just. Um, so the idea is that without rectification of the lower appetites, you literally can't, you, you really will not make good judgments. Um, but the defect will not be in your will. So what's a lower appetite for Aquinas? Aquinas distinguishes between rational appetite, the will, and sensitive appetite, the passions. So to grasp the difference between the two kinds of appetite, you can just consider uh, the contrast between your immediate and strong aversion uh, at the prospect of ingesting foul-smelling medicine. Okay, so that's like a gut instinct. Uh, you'll just be repulsed. Contrast that with the deliberative will to take that foul-smelling medicine for the sake of preserving your health. The former aversion to the medicine is a response to a sense particular, the foul odor, whereas the latter inclination towards taking the medicine arises from a practical judgment that you ought to take it for the sake of preserving your health, no matter how disgusting it is. Now, Aquinas, so that's just the difference between will and lower appetite. Now Aquinas further divides the lower appetites into two different kinds. So there's the concupiscible and the irascible. Uh, fortitude or courage is located in the irascible appetite. That's sort of like your flight away from things you perceive as difficult or as obstacles to your good. Um, and temperance is located in the concupiscible appetite. So that's just the capacity to experience desires for sensibly perceived goods. Uh, desires and pleasures of touch, uh, but it also deals with the sorrows that arise from the absence of these pleasures when they are longed for. 
So uh, fortitude is a kind of firmness of mind, um, and it, it allows you to follow through with reasons, commands in the face of difficulties. So if you think about a soldier uh, who uh, knows what he needs to do in carrying out a dangerous mission, uh, but on account of fear of bodily harm or death, he's unable to execute his plans in the moment of action. Now, if he had fortitude, the firmness of mind necessary to confront fears and difficulties, uh, then he could have carried out his plan successfully. So that's fortitude, and fortitude preserves reason in that way. Now, temperance uh, is dealing with the contrary passionate movement. So uh, it's about moderation or curbing or restraint, a restraint of desires that lead you toward an object of sensual pleasure. Now, Aquinas does not think of these desires primarily as obstacles or problems. He thinks of them primarily as instruments or aids that reason employs in order to attain its proper end. So unlike fears, they're not opposed to reason unless they are immoderate. And they are immoderate only insofar as they distract us from reason's commands. Uh, so again, think of the case of uh, Paolo. Okay, so the very brief sketch of the cardinal virtues shows that the will, which is the capacity to act voluntarily, cannot be well disposed to its acts in absence of well-disposed passions and a well-disposed intellect. Um, so Aquinas' teaching on the cardinal virtue shows, I think, um, that the principal powers of our soul, so our active capacities to think and judge and intend and choose and realize the objects of these judgments and our actions, as well as our passive capacities to desire and move away and avoid from what we perceive as unpleasant or difficult. Um, all of these have to work together cooperatively in order for you to choose well. Um, and that's just a, um, a story about how the human soul has to uh, work in unison towards a single end. Um, and I think that uh, Aquinas's stuff on the cardinal virtues uh, is really great in that respect, that it gives you that ground. Okay, so now I want to try to make the uh, philosophical case that we can make sense of locating uh, temperance in the lower appetites. Um, and in order to do that, I have to say some things about the distinctive intentionality of the passions for Aquinas. Um, the first thing I want to say is that Aquinas thinks of the passions positively, okay? So he's, he's not a stoic. Um, so he thinks that they potentially function so as to help us live well. Um, so there are constitutive features of living well. We need them. However, in order for our passions to function well, uh, they have to be habituated to come under the guidance of reason and control of the will. Um, now, passions are lower appetites for Thomas in three distinct senses. They're shared in common with other animals. They have an intentionality that can be characterized independently of reason, and they depend on cognition of sense particulars rather than universal concepts. Aquinas thinks of passions as movements of a sense appetite caused by perceptions of particulars as good or evil in some material respect. He thinks they are passive powers insofar as they are moved by these perceptions. 
for our purposes, what's really important about his view of the intentionality of the passions um, is the, the way that the intentionality of the passion directs the specific movement of the passion. Um, and in order to understand that, we have to understand a distinction that he makes between intentional and material objects. Aquinas needs this distinction in order to explain how it is that we can experience contrary passions towards one and the same thing. So a material object is just the thing desired, considered as it is in itself, apart from any conscious subject's apprehension of it. An intentional object, by contrast, is the same thing, but considered as consciously apprehended by the subject, who is intentionally directed upon that object in some distinctive phenomenological manner. So the manner in which the conscious subject is directed upon an intentional object of a passion can be grasped in terms of those aspects of it that are gonna color it as good or evil in some respect, and in so doing, essentially characterize it as an object of that passion. And then these intentions can be stored in memory and they shape how we come to perceive things in the world. So intentionality defines our relation to objects by defining the way we are moved towards them or away from them psychologically. Um, I also think it's important to note that for Aquinas, a passion has two, as it were, logically separable moments, not temporally separable, just logically separable. So on the one hand, there's its affect, and that's passive and receptive. And on the other hand, there's its movement, which is active. Uh, but the former determines the latter because the intentional object necessarily specifies the passion into a kind and provides it with its distinctive directionality of motion. So the former movement he calls love and the latter active movement he calls uh, concupiscentia. And these moments of a passion, they can't be experienced separately, um, but they're conceptually distinct. For something is loved insofar as it affects her in such a way as to move her to seek communion with it and to make that absent good present to herself in the relevant respect. Conversely, something's hated insofar as it affects her in such a way as to move her to avoid it. Um, so desire is the sort of tendency towards an object. Um, pleasure is the repose in the object once the absence of it is overcome. Okay, so concupiscence directs us upon objects in such a way as to direct our conscious attention towards them, qua its centrally pleasing material aspects. So we are inclined to them insofar as we perceive some aspect of it as potentially pleasing to touch. For instance, imagine that Eve relates to an apple as an object of her sensual desire, in which case she's, constant, she's consciously directed upon it in her experience as something that holds out for her the promise of sensual pleasure. So maybe she's registering its ripeness or its color or its size or its texture. So while Eve is directed upon real features of the apple, that very same apple may at a later time fail to be an object of this kind of desire. Maybe later on Eve is full. So she's no longer registering that stuff in the same way. But the way that the apple affects Eve, how she suffers its presence or its absence to her, depends on which aspects of the apple are grabbing her perceptual attention. 
Okay, so because we're going to go after whatever is commanding our attention. Um, okay, now Eve can also sensually desire the apple and yet fear the consequences of eating it given her knowledge of God's command. While animals can experience competing passions, conflicts between passion and practical knowledge can only arise in a rational animal, one with a higher form of appetite that Aquinas calls the will. Only a rational animal can step back in a cool hour and be critical of or even alienated from her passions, and only a rational animal can muster the will to do what it judges best in spite of how it's presently affected. So in order to understand this conflict between passion and will, I have to say something, uh, something very brief about the intentionality of the will. Um, so through the exercise of will, Aquinas thinks that our perceptual capacities can be transfigured so that they habitually operate to seek real human good. Um, how do they do that? Well, the will has its own intentionality. Aquinas argues that a rational animal is directed upon the world and its objects primarily through intellect and will, both of which deploy universal concepts whose meanings are bound up in a language. A rational animal is inclined to pursue and avoid things under the intentionality of the universal good rather than the particular good. Um, so things that are registered through reason rather than the senses. Now, since we can't love or desire what we first don't apprehend or know, the will has to get its object from a rational judgment. And Aquinas thinks uh, we pursue uh, things through the will because the practical intellect has, has determined that they ought to be pursued here and now in these circumstances. In order to make that sort of discrimination, that I ought to be doing this as opposed to that, um, I have to have some general conception of how to live that I deploy uh, in making that judgment. Uh, another way to put the same point, which is gonna be a little more familiar uh, for contemporary ears, is to say that what is willed is wanted for reasons. So one cannot act for a reason or voluntarily without knowing what one does and that for the sake of which one does it. Aquinas in his uh, treatise on human acts, in his question on the nature of voluntary action, which is the same as human action for Aquinas, he calls this perfect knowledge of the end. And this means knowledge of the reasons why this end ought to be pursued, um, where these reasons are practically intelligible in light of the agent's other ends. So like the other stuff they've got going on. Um, and finally, the final end, right? So what is their conception of, of living well that's getting deployed uh, in this choice? Um, so I think this is pretty close to what Anscombe is up to in intention. Um, so in intention, uh, Anscombe understands human, object, uh, human actions as objects um, that are picked out in terms of reasons, uh, where reasons are clearly understood in terms of ends. Um, and she thinks that we have to have a certain knowledge of, of our actions under what she calls intentional descriptions. Um, and the whole point, like the whole exercise of intention 
is to isolate a certain form of description of events. Um, I think that's the general intentionality of the will. So I've argued for this in great detail in other papers. Uh, but intentional descriptions are just descriptions that fall under this general intentional form. And they're objects of a special kind of practical knowledge. It's a knowledge that relates the intentional descriptions here and now to the wider context of one's life as a whole. Um, and that's why a special, you, ha you display this kind of knowledge when you can answer a special sense of the why question about what you're up to, uh, a question that reveals uh, your reasons. Um, and of course, these have to be no. Now, what's crucially important to both Aquinas and Anscombe is that um, each, each philosopher recognizes that not everything an agent causes to happen or even foresees that she will cause to happen are objects of her will, right? Are intentional objects. Um, so answers to the why question show how the action under certain descriptions uh, are intentional objects. Like they reveal the distinctive intentionality of the will and operation. Um, and basically that account is what it means to say that the will pursues its objects under the ratio of the universal good. Um, it means that one has knowledge, <laughs> practical knowledge of what one is doing, that one can connect uh, by way of rational connections to their universal conception of what it means to live well. Okay, um, so if we go back to Eve and the apple, if Eve doesn't know that eating the apple is breaking God's law, if she doesn't recognize eating the apple as falling under the higher order intentional description of sin, then she cannot have broken the law intentionally as a matter of will. Um, so again, that just sort of underscores uh, the role of knowledge um, when it comes to the intentionality of the will. Okay, um, I'm going to skip some of the metaphysics of habit because um, I think we don't really have time to uh, get into it. Um, I want to turn now to, so this would be the third page of your handout, to the question of, given that the intentionality of the will is very different from the intentionality of the passions, um, how is it that the exercise of the passions comes under uh, the control of the will, which is to say, how are the passions purified? How, do, how does the account work out? Um, okay, so what do I want to say about this? Um, one, I want to note first that Aquinas thinks we can think about the passions in two ways. So when we're just trying to give like a philosophical anthropology, we consider the passions in two different senses. The first is the sense in which they move themselves. And the second is the sense in which they move subject to the command of reason and will. Um, considered in themselves, merely as movements of sense appetite, they just have a natural teleology. And that natural teleology is captured by their intentionality. Um, Looked at in that way, they don't look like they could be the subjects of good habits, of virtues. Um, and, and Aquinas is really 
clear that grasped from that perspective, they're not voluntary and they cannot be proper subjects of habit. Um, yet they are such as can become voluntary. Um, so when we look at them from the perspective of being subject to the command of reason and will, um, that's the sort of account that he wants to try to give. Um, in order to do that, he thinks he needs to make a further distinction. And this is the distinction between antecedent and consequent passions. So uh, this is a distinction that people fight a lot about, so I'm just gonna try to say something simple and hopefully uncontroversial about them. Antecedent passions just precede and influence movements of will, and they're typically out of joint with its object, the universal good. Antecedent passion. Consequent passion is caused by deliberative choice. So for instance, a man who has not bothered to discipline his sexual desires will find that they influence his choices in a deep way. He is, we might say, driven by his sensual desire to make certain choices. But this influence, uh, the influence of antecedent passion, makes these choices less free because the proper function of the will is to be motivated by practical judgment, not vehement desire. Now, I think we can usefully think of this scholastic distinction between antecedent and consequent passion as highlighting the difference between something like centrally motivated choice, uh, where the passions are exerting a kind of pressure on reason and will in a certain direction, and animated choice, where the passions are consequent to judgment and will, and they help or assist in carrying out what is uh, commanded with ease and pleasure. So well-ordered or virtuous passions are always consequent passions. They animate rather than motivate our choices. And so for Aquinas, I think what he wants to say is that temperance functions to prevent vehement antecedent passions from developing and to produce good consequent passions through deliberate acts of reason and will. So once we have become disposed to good consequent passions, we can begin to live well, since living well depends on proper motivation. Uh, so virtue consists in the passions executing the commands of reason, uh, and this is necessary for someone to be living well. So a virtuous person really has to be passionate, not dispassionate. Uh, so here's a quote from Aquinas. The moral virtues which are concerned with the passions as their proper matter cannot exist without them. The reason for this is that otherwise it would follow that moral virtue would make the sense appetite indifferent to everything. But virtue does not consist in the passions being subject to reason apart from their own proper acts, but rather in the passions executing the command of reason through its proper acts. So that's the picture. Um, what Aquinas is emphasizing here, I think, is the cooperation between reason, will, and passion. In a person who is virtuous, all of these powers operate for the sake of a single unifying end, living well. But this cannot happen apart from the cultivation of good habits in the passion. For if the will has to use the passions, which have their own proper acts, to execute the commands of reason, then the passions simply have to be well disposed to suffer the work of reasons. Um, so their proper acts have to be such as to conform to reason, to cooperate readily. Um, 
So I'll skip the point where he says this very explicitly for the sake of time. Uh, but for Aquinas, I think it's a deeply metaphysical point. Um, they just, whatever is, um, whatever is uh, patient to an agent has to be able to suffer the action of the patient. That's uh, just basic. Um, and this, I think, helps to uh, explain Aristotle's original political metaphor, which Aquinas adopts, uh, namely that reason and will rule over the passions in the manner that a sovereign rules a true citizen, not through coercive force, but through a proper rule of right reason. But look, in order for a citizen to respond to reason, uh, they have to be able to recognize its commands and be motivated by them. Um, so they themselves uh, have to become reasonable. Um, and I think, so I work a lot with psychologists uh, about this stuff, and uh, they helpfully sent me all of these uh, studies that show that sort of willpower uh, tends to become exhausted uh, and basically useless. So you might be able to um, resist your passions for a while, uh, but basically uh, you're going to tire out. Um, most humans do uh, in overwhelming numbers. We just, we get tired of fighting for ourselves. And then of course, we're in a really morally compromised position. And I don't think that the Augustinians take that uh, seriously. Okay. Um, and then let's see, how much time do I have left? What? Just trying to, I have 10 minutes. Okay, um, we all understand that this is different from continence, right? I don't need to go over that anymore. Um, so Aquinas, um, Aquinas has a long discussion of continence in um, his treatise on temperance in the Summa. Um, and he is very clear that continence is in the will. Um, because, right, continence is just about uh, choosing correctly in the face of uh, disordered appetite. So that, so that really is a matter of will, uh, as is incontinence. Um, but it's not, it's not a virtue. Um, so uh, so self-control, um, it's good. And in fact, Aquinas argues that like when you're when you're cultivating um, when you're cultivating temperance, um, you know you have to create all of these positive consequent passions in yourself, and you do it through continence. So it's like self control is a necessary step towards self possession, but it's only like a middle position, and you don't want to get stuck there because if you get stuck at the level of self control. Um, odds are, right, you're going to lapse into incontinence, and that's really dangerous because then you're likely to lapse into vice. Um, so I'm not going to talk about vice, but that's really bad and hard to get out of. Um, I want to say something a little bit more about the cultivation of temperance on Aquinas' view. Um, Aquinas is thinking that the will moves the passions to action, but also that the passions direct our attention to certain features of things, which in turn has effect on the will by presenting it with objects to pursue or flee. Um, so any, anybody who falls short of temperance will be to varying degrees 
inordinately and narrowly focused in on what brings bodily pleasures. So this is a kind of what intemperance does in any of its forms or to any degree. It basically brings about a narrowed vision of reality, um, which makes it impossible for someone to live well. Because virtue depends on a vision of reality that sees things rightly and clearly. Um, and I think that one of Aquinas' essential insights into the moral life is that when we cannot see things rightly, um, sorry, is that we cannot see things <laughs> rightly without feeling things properly because disordered passions direct our attention to features of things that end up distorting reality. Um, so on Aquinas' view, Reason is neither a slave to the passions, nor does reason motivate us totally out of its own accord. So this is nothing like either Hume or Kant. For the person who lives well, reason and passion operate together for the sake of a unified goal. And, and they have to, uh, because they don't operate well independently. Uh, and this gets to the heart of the inseparability thesis with respect to moral virtue and practical wisdom. You cannot develop one without the other. There's no neat and tidy ideology to trace in this development because it doesn't run in a single direction. It's kind of like a feedback loop. So our passions are going to affect our will and reason, and our will and reason is going to affect our passions. Um, and the point is to get them to where they are operating in unison for the sake of a single goal, which is living well. Um, and there's no way to make that happen without cultivating the virtue that's appropriate to each power. So again, that goes back to the cardinal virtues and the university of the, the university, the yeah, unity of the virtues thesis. Um, so just to sum up, it's through the exercise of mere self-control or continence that our consequent passions are reshaped in such a way that our antecedent passions diminish over time and we're able to come into full possession of ourselves <laughs> so that our sensual desires become moderate. While Aquinas does not think we can totally eliminate our antecedent passions entirely, um, so nobody has perfect virtue, he does think that we can exercise enough mastery to transform and purify our receptivity to things in the world, such that we become reasonably affected in a general way. Okay, so in like the last five minutes, I just want to say how I think the virtue of temperance uh, is necessary for justice. So that is to say, it's necessary for us to be rightly related to others uh, so that we can attain our common good uh, together. So just to remind everybody who probably already knows, for Aquinas, uh, the happy life is a life of friendship uh, in which we pursue a common good through common actions with others. Intemperance, like every vice, prevents us from attaining this goal in large part by preventing us from being such as to live in friendship with others. Um, and so I think a few obvious examples will just help to underscore the basic point, um, which is that all virtue is ultimately ordered to the common good. So let us assume with Aristotle and Aquinas uh, in thinking that friends reciprocally will the good of the other. 
And let us assume that most adulterers are motivated by lust, since what they are principally after is sexual pleasure uh, with someone else's spouse. Now, the adulterer cannot be a friend to those he wrongs. That is, he cannot truthfully say that he wills their good because his actions actively work against it. He cannot be a friend to the husband of the woman he commits adultery with or to her children since he harms them by destabilizing the family. He cannot be a friend to his lover since he is the cause of her own lack of integrity and honesty. The adulterer forsakes the good of others in order to indulge his own desires, and in so doing, Aquinas thinks that he also forsakes his own good, since his true happiness is attained in participation in a common life with others. Undisciplined sexual desires can be the source of much injustice specifically directed at women. The most dramatic harm is rape and sexual assault, both of which are very common and disproportionately harm women and prevent their equal participation in common life. While rape and assault are about power and dominance over others, they are acts of aggression and violence that are explicitly fueled by inordinate, immoderate sexual desire and make no sense without appeal to them at the root. Rape and assault thrive in cultures that actively encourage the sexual objectification of women, a phenomenon that is also driven by immoderate sexual desire. When one looks upon a woman with impure eyes, he does not see her as a human person, but a site of his own sexual gratification. In treating a woman as an object in this way, he narrows his vision of her to those aspects of her that hold out the promise of his own pleasure. Aquinas' account of the intentionality of sensual desire and how it impacts reason and will give us the tools to spell out more clearly the harms done to women when they are seen as less than they truly are, as less than human persons worthy of honor, dignity, and mutual respect. Only pure eyes, those that see the world as the temperate man sees it, can see a woman as a true equal. Catcalling, lascivious stares, and other forms of sexual harassment that are incredibly common are injustices against women and work against their full equality with men, but they are injustices fueled by intemperance. Such, object such objectification harms women in more ways than can be recounted here. For now, it will suffice to note that this mistreatment further decreases women's ability to gain power, access to power within society. It causes the marginalization of women when men cite their lack of sexual self-control as a reason to ostracize women from spaces where important deliberative decisions are made. The so-called Mike Pence rules, uh, this is an American example, are a classic example of such exclusionary practices. Lack of moderated sexual desire creates unequal and unfair burdens on women to be ashamed of their own bodies lest they tempt men. Therefore, a society that strives to be equal and just needs men with moderated sexual desires. Its laws and customs should be crafted to encourage and reward such moderation. For justice is an external order of reason, of being rightly related to one another, but it depends on people being well-ordered internally. That is to say, being in full possession of themselves so they can grasp this order clearly and carry it out in their actions. Thank you for your attention.